Father God, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that your spirit would allow us to understand the truth of your word in ways that aren't just in our head, but to our hearts and to our lives, that we would begin to change, to become more and more the people, the church that you desire for us to be. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, it's good to be with all of you this afternoon, especially for those of you who are new and visiting maybe, and also for all of the children who are with us at our family service. We do this once a quarter because even though we do have a children's ministry normally, we do like the children to be able to be in service once in a while to see what it is we do here to understand that church is not just about uh, fun and games and separating the family, but really we are a family of God. And that kind of leads into what we are talking about this afternoon. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, For the past few weeks and for the next um, probably about five more weeks, we're going to be going through the metaphors of the church in the New Testament. So what does the Bible say about what the church is? And normally here at Zoe, we do verse by verse preaching through books of the Bible. We did 1 Samuel uh, last and we'll be doing 2 Samuel coming up. But right now, we're talking about the church because we have experienced a little bit of growth as a church. We have a lot of people who are new who have been here for less than a year. And we want to make sure that we're on the right page, the biblical page, when it comes to what exactly the church is supposed to be. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to spend most of our time this afternoon as we talk about the next metaphor for what the church is according to God. As you turn your Bibles there, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had something weird happen to your body? Uh, probably you have, I'm sure. A few years back, I had a strange occurrence happen to me, and it wasn't your normal sort of getting to middle age thing where like, my knees were hurting, but it was really a bizarre situation. What happened was I was uh, changing or something, uh, my shirt, and my wife noticed on my back I had these very strange red dots. And I'm not talking about uh, small red dots, okay? I'm talking about dots that were penny-sized. You can imagine penny-sized. And not just penny-sized, but they were perfectly spaced out, okay? Very perfectly spaced in a bizarre way. It almost looked like I had been imprinted by something. Now, um, the appearance of the dots was slightly concerning. It wasn't painful or anything. And I didn't have any recollection of getting hurt or having anything happen to my body. Now... Because of that, I did what most of you would probably do in the situation if you were me. I went online, right, and I typed in red dots on the back of my body. And as I started to look up online, things just got weirder and weirder. Okay, the first thing that I I found of anyone talking about this was on some forum where they said, I noticed that these dots happened after a really intense dream. And lo and behold, I had a really weird dream the night before these dots happened. Then I went further, further into it, and they're like, no, doctors don't know what it is. No one knows what it is. I'm the only person. But I found this online forum where other people had the same experience. So I started to read this forum. And after going deeper and deeper into my research online to get to the bottom of it, the only explanation that I could find for what had happened to my back was that I had been abducted by aliens. (laughs) Now, um, spoiler alert, I wasn't abducted, okay? Um, now, that's just a mini-sermon in and of itself about the dangers of self-diagnosis. Um, but when I finally did figure out what it was, so I know you guys are going to be thinking about this the whole sermon if I don't tell you. What it was was there's this bench by my house, and it had dots on the bench. And if I leaned against it for a long enough time, it created an imprint on my back. Very strange, um, but that's what happened. But the reason I tell you this story this afternoon is that we are talking about the church as a body. 
And there are few things in life, I know, that can captivate us, that can get our attention as much as the health of our bodies. We think about it all the time. Right? This is what so much of our life is spent on, especially the older you get, the more you think about it. How many millions and billions of dollars each year are made by companies that sell us better health, better looks, better guts, better hair, better eyelashes, better probiotics, all of these things that tell us that to make sure your one body is as healthy as it can be is the most important thing. We care about our bodies, and it's natural. And this afternoon, as we continue our study on the metaphors for the church, we are going to look at this common metaphor, an important metaphor, when Paul says that the church is a body. And this metaphor, which is used uh, at least three times in length, is a powerful one that shows us how important the church is to Christ and how important it should be to us, and how high of a priority the health of the church ought to be. So to get us started in this study, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You can read those verses with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This afternoon, as we look at the metaphor of the body, for the first of what's going to end up being two messages, there are three aspects of a body that we're going to see from this passage that show us what it means that the church is the body of Christ. I'm going to start in verses 1 through 6. The first thing that we need to understand about the church as the body of Christ is that the church body sticks together. Okay? The church body sticks together. We need to start at the most basic idea here. What does it mean to be a body? What is a body? Well, most of you kind of know that intuitively, right? You all have a body. Uh, in the Bible, the word that's translated body is the Greek word soma, uh, which basically means a physical body. So it could mean a corpse, but it also refers to like a living animal or human or anything like that. Now, if you think about the word in English for body, right? Um, my head in and of itself is not my body. My feet are not my body. But also, like you sitting down right now and the pew that you're attached to, that's not a body either. Right? So, so when we think about this idea of a body, and this takes place in the realm of nature and just kind of our understanding of the word, 
A body is this unified, whole, distinct thing. Okay, that's what a body is, this unified, whole, distinct entity. Now, in Ephesians, when Paul begins to talk about the body and the church, he makes it clear in the very beginning of this book that he is talking about Jesus' body. Okay, in verse one, chapter 1, verse 23 of Ephesians, Paul says that Christ is the head over all things to the church, which is his body. And so while Paul is talking in this book about Jesus' body, when he talks about the church, he is talking about how we as individuals come together to form this body, to, to be parts of this distinct, unified whole. And that's the first and most important aspect of what it means to call the church a body. It's unity. There is a unity, a unified nature to the church that Paul wants us to understand. Look at verse 4 with me. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. All of these ones to show us that we as a body of believers are united to one another. That we've been brought together by this same God the same spirit, the same son, the same gospel. And it is through what Christ has accomplished in the sacrifice of his body on the cross and rising from the dead that we now become something new together. The big idea is unity. So every Christian, if you read this passage, every Christian anywhere in the world in any individual church is united to Jesus and becomes part of his body. And so one of the first things about the church that that we need to understand is that the nature of the church is to be unified. It's to be stuck together. It's to have this togetherness in a way that supersedes what we see in the world around us. When I was about 20 years old, I um, was in college and I was uh, studying biology and I did my first mammal dissection. Okay, Kind of gross. Uh, It was a section of a cat. Um, and the cat was dead for a long time, and it was in formaldehyde, and it was um, very stiff and, and smelly, and we all had coats and gloves, and we sat on this long science bench ready to become familiar in ways that most people aren't with the interconnections of this cat's body. Now, if you've never done a dissection before, one of the things you might not know is that it's not very easy to separate the different parts. That even though in the diagram every part is very clearly drawn out and and you could break them apart when you actually get to the body it's very hard in fact one of our grades came from just how well you were able to separate these parts from one another without destroying them because a body isn't as easy to separate as we think in fact the word dissection comes from the words in latin to cut apart you have to cut apart this body it doesn't just separate easily for you you see a body in greek in latin in english It's not easily separated. And even though there are different parts, even though there are young and old people, even though there are people from different places and backgrounds and situations, in a body, the parts are intricately, intimately stuck together. The body of Christ is a metaphor that the church is a body, that it's Christ's body, is a reminder of just how united we're supposed to be. Now, If you are a discerning thinker, you might be thinking, well, this is about like all Christians everywhere, right? Everyone who believes is united to Christ, is part of Christ's body. 
But how does that unity show up in my life, right? Like, what does it mean that I am united in the same body as some Christian who is on the other side of the world? And that question is answered in the Bible by the local church. Even though there is one universal church, one body of all people who are united to Christ, in the New Testament, what we see and in Paul's letters is that this body exists in local congregations of believers, just like us here at Zoe. While there is one body, every local church, no matter how big or small, is a manifestation, an expression of that body in this world. This is what Paul also wants us to see here. And it's why the idea of the church as a body is so practical. There's a truth here that not only are we supposed to know, but we're actually supposed to experience with one another in the unity of the local church. See, as part of a local church, you're meant to experience and pursue unity with one another. You're supposed to value it. When you become part of a church, there is a unity that you have with the other people in that church that is of a supernatural nature. In your local church, you ought to pursue this stickiness, quote-unquote, with one another. That though we are different, and though we are from different places, though we have different families, as a church, what we have in common is far greater than the things that are different about us. Now, it's not easy, okay? It's easy to say, but it's not easy to experience those things. And we have to be realistic about that because I think in our, our modern world, right, there is so much focus on diversity for the sake of diversity. We need to recognize that, that it takes work, okay, that, that unifying around something in common, unifying around the gospel is not as easy as it might be to say, and yet it's so important and it is meant to be true in the church. Diversity is great, but if we do not recognize that we are part of one body that belongs to Jesus, and we won't be able to survive the differences that will honestly and obviously come up. As a local church, what Paul wants us to see, and what he wanted the Ephesian church to see, and every church that he planted, was that they were united to one another in Christ. And so they should experience unity and connection with one another that superseded the things that they experienced in the world. See, brothers and sisters, as a church... There ought not to be one person, not one person in the church, who you dread seeing because your relationship with that person is so broken that you can't see them as part of the same body. And that, that sounds like maybe it's obvious, but if you've been in church long enough, and I've been in church almost my whole life, that's not a given at all. In fact, some people can't even imagine what it would be like to be in a church and not have that person. Because what is church if you don't have some enemy sitting in the other pew? Yet the Bible says that that is a perversion of the body. That your relationships with one another are so important to God because you have been brought together under Christ. Unity is something that so many people give lip service to wanting, yet few people experience, and it is ours in Christ in the church. I was reading a, um, an article the other day by a journalist uh, whose name is Faith Hill, and uh, the name of the article was This Kiss. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Different Faith Hill. Sorry. Old joke. Um, Faith Hill, she's this writer about religion and stuff. And she was talking about this thing called Sunday Assembly. And we had actually talked about Sunday Assembly at Zoe about five years ago. What Sunday Assembly was, was it was a, um, a godless church, literally. 
they decided we're going to do church, but we're going to do it without religion. Okay, no faith, no God. We're going to do all the fun stuff of church. Just forget God so we don't have to worry about as- that aspect of it. And so Sunday Assembly started up, um, I think overall, about 10 years ago. And it was growing really fast. Um, people were coming and they were, had like 70 congregations in the U.S. and Europe. And people would get together and they would have a sermon about like science or uh, philosophy or psychology. And they would sing some popular songs together, right? It's kind of like karaoke time. And then they would do some snacks and discussion, you know, kind of like church except um, no Jesus. And um, people enjoyed it for a time. But as Faith Hill was writing, even before the pandemic came, the number of Sunday assemblies had fallen in half. And in the short span of two years, what had once looked like kind of this exciting new movement had completely fallen apart. People didn't want to come. People didn't want to give. People didn't want to serve at all. And this is what she wrote in her article. She said, you can't just meet for the sake of community itself. You need a very very powerful motivating element to keep people coming, something that attendees have in common. Brothers and sisters, this is true of the church. See, there are a lot of false commonalities in the church today. A lot of churches that, that they try to get around the fact that, hey, we're all in the same stage of life. Or, hey, we are all into the same kind of music. Or we're all into uh, cowboys or something like that. And you see this in the church. And yet those things cannot be the center of the church because the church is Christ's body. He is the commonality that we need. He is the commonality that we have. And if we have that, we have something amazing. See, as a church, even though we are different, even though we may have different opinions, even though we may have different politics at times, what do we have in common? We know we are all sinners in need of God's grace. We know that we are people who are growing in our sanctification so that we can admit that we're going to be wrong at times and we can ask for forgiveness. We know that we're supposed to seek God's glory so we can put away the slights that may come into our lives. We can partner together for things, even if we sacrifice, even when it is uncomfortable. We can do things because it is what God wants, not just because it's what we want. You see, this unity, this togetherness, it comes about because of Jesus. That's what it means to be a body. And we need to understand this if we're going to get church right. Church is a body. We are united. We stick together because we share one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one gospel, one God and Father. Secondly, the metaphor of the church as the body of Christ tells us that not only does the church stick together, the church is meant to work together. The church body works together. Look at verses 7 through 12 of this passage. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. You can stop right there. Paul's next idea, which is illustrated by the body metaphor, not only has to do with what the body is, but what the body does. I said that the word soma can refer to a physical body, either alive or dead, like a corpse. But these verses make it clear to us that when Paul talks about the church as a body, he's not talking about a corpse. He's talking about a living, working, moving body, a healthy body that does things together. Now, 
The Bible teaches us that when you are part of a church, it's not just about you. It's not for yourself that you're part of a church body, but it's for something bigger. In fact, as a church, we are supposed to work together with other Christians in our local congregation to accomplish Christ's work. We are one. That is the primary idea behind the body. But in verse 7, there are differences. Not every person is exactly the same. And grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts so that we can do things together that we could not do apart. The point of all this is to say that each one of us has been gifted by Christ to participate in the body for Jesus' purposes. Now, if you look at these verses and, and you're following along with what he's saying, we don't have time to do a full in-depth study of every single word in this passage, but what you'll see is that Paul is kind of giving us the gospel movement of Christ's body, right? That he came, he was incarnate, he came to earth, was, was born as a human baby, he lived this perfect life we could never live, and he died the sinner's death that you and I deserve, and then he rose from the dead, Right? He, he rose from the dead, taking away the, the guilt and shame and punishment of sin for those who believe. And then he's ascended now on high to sit next to God the Father, to reign forever. And there's this kind of movement that he goes through. And in saying that we're the body of Christ and talking about the gospel movement of Christ's actual body, what Paul is saying is that we have a part to play in proclaiming this to the world. We have a part to play in showing that Christ died, rose again, and is ascended on high, that he reigns over all things. Our purpose as a church is about what he did, telling people, proclaiming to people what he did, participating in it, because we are now members of his body. There is work to be done that is tied to the purposes of God in sending Jesus to this earth. Now, we might have talked about, I think we did talk about this before, but you probably forgot there is a major theme of the Bible. Okay? The Bible is many books and many stories. But if you could summarize kind of the overall theme of the Bible in one simple sentence, this would be a good way to do it. The Bible is about redemption in Christ for the glory of God. Redemption in Christ Jesus for the glory of God. Redemption of sinners like us for God's glory alone. And involvement in that work of proclaiming that message is the work and glory of the church. As we build up the body of Christ and bring new members into it, we participate in Christ who will one day fill all things with his infinite glory for eternity. So the church, the body of Christ, is meant to work towards this goal of glorifying God by proclaiming the gospel. And yet so often we find in the church nowadays, to our shame, we don't work at all towards that goal. We work for all sorts of earthly things, but we've forgotten the theme of creation and the theme of the word of God, the reason for Christ's body. So many churches nowadays, they look more like corpses than they look like living bodies, where the gospel is gone and God is gone. In fact, some churches look more dead than Sunday assembly. You'll find more Jesus in Sunday assembly than you will in the churches of God. Have you ever thought about what it means to get older? I'm sure most of you have if you've gotten older. It means a lot of things. Um, as you age, you get older, you get wiser. Uh, you get maybe more sentimental, or in my case, you get a little bit crankier with uh, young people. Um, 
But physically speaking, when you get older, what happens is cells in your body are replaced over time, right? Um, I was watching a documentary. They said that at any point in your life, the majority of cells in your body are no older than 10 years old, which is kind of interesting, right? Your body just kind of replenishes over time. But there are some very important parts of your body, some extremely important cells that don't reproduce, that don't replace themselves over time. And so as you get older, those cells that are in charge of replacing parts of your body, they get older. They don't reproduce themselves. They get older and older. They stop working. And eventually, those cells stop working altogether, and you cannot reproduce anymore. Your nerve connections, your membranes, those connective things, those are the first things to go. And I was watching this documentary about getting older. This is what they said. They said, and I'm I'm trying to quote them exactly. They said, after you've finished reproducing, your body has fulfilled its biological purpose and is quite literally wasting away. I was like, that, that is so depressing. Like, what is wrong with this documentary? Okay, what, what, just on a side note, what a terrible worldview, right? That that's all there is to life. Just have babies, and after that, your life is just wasting away. Happy family service, right? But the point stands that a body that doesn't work, that isn't working towards a purpose, is in many ways a body that begins to die. And we need a purpose. And the verses in Ephesians 4 show us that this body of Christ that we are part of is not dead. It's not a failing body. It is the body of Christ. It is the living body. It is meant to be alive, to be working, to be headed towards a goal and a purpose. Like I said before, so many churches, unfortunately, look like they're wasting away. That's not to say that they don't have value, um, but it's so easy for a church to be about the gospel for a season of time. And then for the next 20, 30, 80 years to be about paying the mortgage and having friends for our kids and making sure that my grandkids have a place to get married in. This is not what the Holy Spirit envisions the body of Christ to be. Paul moves from the unity of the body to the work of the body, which is done by the members of the body with one another and towards one another. Now, what does it look like to be a church then that is working, that is doing the work of the body the way that we're supposed to? Well, it's simple. It's sharing the gospel. It's preaching the word of God. It is worshiping God together. It's discipling new believers. It's giving to the work of the ministry around the world. It is helping meet the needs of the poor and the downtrodden in the church and community. It is praying for one another and for this world without ceasing. This is what a church body should be about, working for God's glory through his means. And we're going to talk about this more next week as we examine the body metaphor from Scripture and how we're all different members of the body. But in this passage, Paul tells us that each person in the body has been given grace in order to be part of this work. If this is Christ's body, then we are supposed to be doing the work he wants us to do. Now, look at the passage again, Ephesians 4. There is something here for us to see about how it is we figure this out, okay? He says in verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. All of these giftings that he talks about in this passage have to do with the word of God. That he gives us people to teach us the word. He gives us the word itself so that we will know how to use our gifts 
for God's work and for his purposes. It comes back to the word of God as it always does. If we're the body, we're supposed to be taking commands from the head. Right? Just like in your physical body, it's only working right if your body parts are taking commands from the brain and are listening and doing what they're supposed to do. That's the same as it is in the church. And if we cut ourselves off from the word, we cut ourselves off from the head. The work of the church is the work of Christ to proclaim redemption in his name for God's glory through his body. So you come to church, you hear the word, you apply it to your life, you share it with others. Personal, individual, spiritual growth is where it starts, but it's not the whole picture. There are things that we're meant to do as the church body to show Christ to one another and to the world that can only be done together. My daughter, uh, she's eight years old, and she started to do a, a um, biography or a biographical um, study project. So kind of the first time she's done this. And the person she was assigned to do was um, Henry Ford. If you guys don't know who Henry Ford is, he is a famous uh, entrepreneur, industrialist. He's very famous for creating the Ford F-150. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Model T. Um, and the thing that was so groundbreaking about Ford was that he used the assembly line in the production of his automobile. So um, this is just a little bit of history, which I'm kind of into, but you might not be. But back when they first started making the Model T, they used to um, take about 13 hours to make the vehicle from start to finish. And uh, back when they first had Model Ts, you could get them in any color you wanted because they would just paint the car the color you wanted and you would get that delivered to you. But in using the um, assembly line, what Henry Ford was able to do was take that 13-hour process and turn it into a one-hour-and-30-minute production. It's crazy, right? An hour and 30 minutes to build a complete automobile, and only in the color black, because black dried the fastest. Now, I know that an assembly line is not the best metaphor or illustration for us in the church. Okay, I'm not saying you're all just little cogs in the machine, like keep doing your hammering or whatever. But it illustrates the great power of cooperation to do what we cannot do apart together. The body, if you don't know, is the most amazing cooperative machine in the world. This body that God designed, I'm talking about the physical body that that he designed and he created. It's amazing how it works in in these many just, just, just intricate ways to be able to see and to smell and to touch and taste and to feel and all these things. It's just an amazing, an amazing show of God's creativity. And God says, the church is his body. That's incredible. Right? Like I said in the beginning, there's almost nothing more important to us than the health of our own bodies. God calls his people his body. The people that Jesus has saved and brought together for his purposes. Think of all the one another commands of the New Testament. Or even just a few of them. Okay, They cannot be done apart. They must be done together. The Bible says, love one another. Live in harmony with one another. The Bible says, instruct one another. It says, comfort one another. New Testament says, you are to serve one another. You are to forgive one another. You are to submit to one another. And all of these things require us to be in a church body, working together for Jesus' purposes in this world. That leads us, finally, to the third and final implication we get from the body metaphor this afternoon. The church body sticks together. The church body works together. Finally, the church body grows together. The church body grows together. 
I said we're supposed to work towards Christ's glorious purpose with one another and towards one another. That sounds kind of generic and lofty, right? Um, Kind of churchy. Um, I admit as a pastor that sometimes churches are guilty of talking a big game, but it doesn't affect our day-to-day lives at all, right? We just want to inspire you for 20 minutes so you can have a great time of singing, and then we go about our lives just like we've always done week after week. And that's not the way the Bible works, okay? The Bible is meant to be transformative. There are lofty truths, of course. There are cosmic realities, but they're all tied to how we live, how we live in this world for God, not for ourselves. In Ephesians 4, Paul shows us that the glorious purpose of Jesus is cosmic and eternal, right? Christ is ascended and he will reign forever for eternity, but at the same time, it is practical and present and it's meant to change your life in a boots-on-the-ground kind of way. It is powerful and practical. And you don't need to be sophisticated to get what we're working towards together. Okay, if you look at these verses, verse 13 and on, it begins with the word until, which is the word that signifies the end, the goal, or the purpose of the body's working to build itself up. Let's read these verses again. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The overarching idea that the body grows up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does it mean? Kind of in, in simple layman's terms, what is the easiest way to understand that? It means that when Christ looks at the church, looks at his body, his desire is for us to grow up. His desire is for us to grow up, okay? You are supposed to mature. You're supposed to level up, so to speak, to look more and more like Jesus, The body of Christ that we all become part of as individual members is meant to grow together to become more like Jesus in how we show Jesus to the world and how we experience God with one another. The goal is that we become like Jesus as a church in a way that is good and powerful so we begin to live like Jesus more and more every day and every moment. So, if you are a Christian and you say you want to become more like Jesus, Well, then there's a truth that we need to know, that according to the Bible, you need to be part of a local church to grow in that way. You need to be part of the church to grow in that way. And that's a hard thing. In fact, it's a hard thing, especially here in Texas, because you can be a Christian in Texas and, and, and not even be part of a church, right? There's a lot of people like that who claim to be Christians and they're not part of any church, right? Maybe they go to church once or twice a year. Maybe they don't go to church at all. They say, I'm just a follower of Jesus by myself. Well, that might be the case, but you will never grow to maturity and Christ-likeness in that way. Your growth will be stunted. It will be stunted, as the Bible tells us. I'm convinced that the Bible teaches this, and I believe that there are no exceptions. You cannot hop churches indefinitely for your life and not be severely handicapped as a Christian in some way. You cannot be an itinerant preacher who does not have a home church without some serious defects in your Christian maturity. I don't care how popular you are. You cannot live life separate from the body and somehow think that you're going to grow the way that Christ intends. 
If you want to grow, it happens as part of his church. Through instruction, through service, through accountability, through fellowship, and through love. And this maturity, this growth, this leveling up changes our lives. It changes our lives in a good way. As your pastor and as your elders, we in the church long for us to experience this. But we can't force you. We can't force you to to believe it. We can't force you to do it. All we can do is show you the word of God. And hopefully the word of God, the spirit of God, will convict you to live in this way. What are the key characteristics of the Christ-likeness that we are supposed to grow into? Well, if you look at these verses, we see three big areas of growth. Growth in faith, growth in maturity, and growth in love. We're going to hit them one at a time before we end. First, faith. Paul says that we are building one another up until we attain the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So we've already talked about unity a little bit. This unity, according to Paul, is centered on the faith and knowledge of Jesus. The church is where we grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ and in our faith in him. When the Protestant Reformation was going on, the reformers kind of got together and, well, separately at first and then kind of got together to iron things out. What are the the main signs or what are the primary tenets of a true church? What makes something, a group of people, a true church? And this is what they said. It's the preaching of the word, the administration of baptism and Lord's Supper, and church discipline for those who are in sin. Three things. The church is where you mature in faith with one another. The preaching of the word where you experience God's word being powerfully taught, where you respond to it in faith, and where you receive correction in the ways in which you need to grow and change. As we grow in the faith, there ought to be learning and deepening of our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And not just a growing in the, the breath of the church of new people coming, but of growing in depth, of knowing God's character, of knowing who he is, so that when we go through tough times, we aren't shaken. And this leads us to the second area of growth, maturity. Right? Faith, but also maturity. What is maturity? How would you define it? Hey, just think about that for a moment. Hard word to define. How would you define maturity? Um, sometimes it's one of those things that you know when you see it, and you definitely know when you don't see it, right? You definitely know when someone's being immature. Paul here, when he says it, he says mature manhood, okay? Verse 13, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, this word, mature manhood, is the word in Greek, andra or andra. It's not a word that talks about masculinity, okay? It's not about, like, masculine versus feminine. Instead, it's the difference between being a boy and a man. Andra is a man, to be a full-grown man. In other words, what I think he is talking about is that church is meant to mature and change and grow from us being childlike, for being like kids, to having what I like to call old man strength. Okay, old man strength. You guys know what old man strength is? Hopefully, I mean, if you play ball, you probably do. If you enjoy playing sports, this is a commonly used term, old man strength. And um, let me explain to you what it is. When I was growing up, I would um, play basketball every Saturday at the church I grew up at in the gym, um, probably from the age of 14 or 13 all the way till I was done with college, so about 24. Um, I was playing all the time with these other guys, and, and we had a range of guys all the way from junior hires like myself at first to uh, guys who were in their uh, upper decades. I don't want to say any particular ages. And there was one guy, we called him Uncle Sherman. 
And he was older than the rest. Um, and though he could not run, and though he could not jump, and though he could not uh, defensively slide, and though he couldn't even really shoot that well, if he set a pick, you thought you had run into a brick wall. Right? It was like death. Right? If you ran into a pick, it was over. If he fouled you, you knew you were going to the kitchen to get a bag of ice because it wasn't pretty. This is old man strength. It's the strength to be immovable. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? If you play ball, it's the strength to be immovable. So Paul says in verse 14, the church, this pillar and buttress of truth, which we talked about last week, is to grow into maturity that leads to stability. He says, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, this stability that Paul talks about in verse 13, 14, it covers multiple areas. Right? It talks about emotional stability, not being tossed to and fro by the waves, not being uh, wrecked by every new circumstance that comes into life, not having these things destroy you because you as a church, not as an individual, as a church, are mature and stable. It talks about doctrinal soundness so that it's not just whatever blog post random people have read that changes the theology of the church, that as a church we come together, we, we sharpen one another, we know when things are false teaching or not. We allow others to speak into our lives in that way. There is wisdom here in seeing the schemes, the cunning of the world and of the devil. The ways in which the enemies of God want to infect and infiltrate the people of God with falsehoods and lies in every sort of way. God desires for his church mature stability, to be steadfast and movable on the solid rock of Christ and his word. And the church is where you can walk through these things together, submitted to God's word with other believers. Have you ever had a flaky friend? Actually, the question I should ask is, have you ever had a friend who wasn't flaky? Because that's the real rarity. That's the real treasure. Stability and maturity are the rare stuff that lasts through the wind and the waves of this world. One commentator put it this way. He said, Christ has given his gifts to the church body so that immaturity and instability might be left behind. Might be left behind. Might be in the past. And it's so many Christians, so many churches, it's not the past, right? It's the present. It's just constant immaturity and instability. The Bible says we are to grow together, to be steadfast, grow in his word, Grow in sound doctrine, grow in wisdom, grow in loving one another, and we will be mature. This leads us to the last, the third way in which we are to grow together, which is love. We are to grow together in love. Love, of course, is often Paul's way of summarizing what we're supposed to be about. The church body builds itself up in love. This is the goal of God bringing you together to be with a church body not the only goal, but one of the main goals that you might learn to love. You know, there's um, a song, All You Need Is Love, which is a popular song, and, you know, we all resonate with that. What the Bible tells us is that, yeah, you do need love, but what you really need is to learn to love. You get love from God. You learn to love others with his love in the church. Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul is encouraging each member of the body as they do the work that they are meant to do, that they've been gifted to do, to learn to love one another. To learn to love one another. This is the mindset of a mature and growing and healthy church. The mindset not of how well will this church love me, but how can I love the other members of this body? If that's the mindset of Zoe, we will grow in maturity in this way. We will grow in love. But if the mindset remains this selfish mindset of who's going to give me the love I deserve and need, well, things start to fall apart very quickly. It's like the marriage where you want it to be exactly 50-50, right? Tit for tat, exactly even in every way. It never works. It's only the marriage where both people are committed to radical generosity and radical love and selflessness that things really start to mature and grow. This is a major problem in the church today. Men and women, whole families whose primary concern with the church is how will this church meet my needs? And all the while, you don't see, you haven't seen from Scripture that one of the greatest needs you have is to stop being selfish and to work properly as part of Christ's body, loving others more than you love yourself. That's what the church body should look like. Romans 12.5, we read it in the Scripture reading. And so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That being in this body means we belong to Jesus but also we have a commitment and a responsibility to love those around us. A healthy church body sticks together, it works together, and it grows together. And this is what it means that we are the body of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, as we wind down the sermon, I started with a story about something kind of going wrong with my body. And I'll end with another one because you guys want to know about all my details. Um, Just kidding. This past week, um, I wasn't here last Sunday. I was supposed to be here and preaching, but uh, our family got sick, right? So we ended up getting sick, almost all of us. And to be honest, it wasn't too terrible. It was tiring, though, uh, especially since Trisha, uh, my wife, and myself got sick, and most of the kids weren't allowed to be in school because they had to quarantine. So we were all at home uh, with the four kids, uh, nobody really feeling up to the task of taking care of everything, okay? And um, as I was sitting at home, and we were on the recovery by last Sunday, we were watching the service stream from this room, right? We were watching it from our couch at home. And while um, I was at home separate from the body, I, I really felt that I was experiencing the truth of the phrase that distance makes the heart grow fonder. And I, I was amazed because I really started to feel like it's crazy how this is the body of Christ. I was amazed and I was blessed by it. On the one hand, I was sitting at home and I was, um, you know, doing what you do at home, right? I was eating snacks during the sermon. I was going to the bathroom like eight times, um, just kind of um, looking at my kids, taking care of them. Um, and it was nice to be with my family. But as we were there and listening and worshiping on the couch, and I was looking at, at what was happening at church, um, I was just overwhelmed with the sense that this was the active, healthy body of Christ that I had the privilege to be part of. Because you guys know that um, I was sick, and I'm one of the paid pastors here, and Jesse's the other paid pastor, and he just had a baby, so Jesse was gone. And last weekend, and this is to encourage you as a church, last weekend we had a men's ministry event on Saturday, 
We had church service with everything going on, and there was not one person in the church that weekend who was being paid by y'all. Right? It was you guys, the body of Christ, working. And Jesse and I were just sitting at home on our couches doing who knows what. But the body was working together in an amazing way as this unified, distinct whole, this body of many parts brought together by Christ. And as I was home and, like I said, eating food that was dropped off by people in the church and experiencing the care of the body of Christ, people were texting me and praying for me. That wasn't the thing that most impressed me. It was this functioning body of Christ at the church because James was preaching powerfully about the truth. Powerfully, in an amazing way. And the deacons were serving faithfully. And the members of the church, most of you here, were watching one another's kids, instructing them in the gospel. Others were welcoming newcomers. Still others were praying for one another before service and after. And the whole weekend, the body was living. The body was working. The body was growing. They were united. We were united in Christ. We were a body. We were sticking together. We were working together. We were growing together, and it wasn't because it was Jesse's church or because it's my church or because we are so good at administration. It was because this is Christ's church. It is his body. He is the one who is at work through us for his glory. So as we pray together right now, as a body worshiping together, let's bring ourselves to our head, Christ the Lord. Father God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your word that tells us that, that we are the body of Christ. And that's an amazing thing, Lord. And we say it so often. We hear it all the time. This, this metaphor, would you help us to understand from your word that this common illustration is a truth that should change our lives, that should give us a new perspective about the church, about the people who you place us in fellowship with, that it would help us to grow and to, to work to stick together for your glory and not our own. At this time, I just want to give you a few minutes to pray where you are. Maybe you're someone who hasn't been part of the church body in a while. You want to pray and ask the Lord to guide you and to help you to make that a priority because the church body is his priority. I'll give you a few moments to pray for that. Secondly, I just want to give us a chance to pray in thanksgiving to the Lord for the body of Christ. To thank him for the ways in which you have experienced the love and the care and the maturity and the growth of the church together with other brothers and sisters in him. You can pray in thanksgiving to the Lord right now. Father God, we praise you and we thank you and we worship you because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ who came to this earth to live that perfect life that we could never live, to die on the cross, the death that we as sinners deserve to take the punishment for our sin, to conquer sin and death, to rise from the grave and to now be ascended, reigning victorious over all things. And Lord, we are here because of that. 
We gather together because of Jesus, and we pray that this time of worship, this time of fellowship that follows this whole Sunday would be the Lord's day because this is the Lord's church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.